Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. COVID-19 has been our reality for several months now, but today we want to talk about the way forward. Scientists are working to develop a few different treatments for the condition and, of course, a vaccine to stop the coronavirus. But what does it take for that research to turn into results? And what might our lives look like while we wait for those results? We're diving into those questions with Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventive Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University. If his name sounds familiar, that's because we talked to him a few months ago, just as the coronavirus pandemic was kicking into high gear. Dr. Schaffner, thank you so much. We're so glad you could join us again today. Good to be with you, Carrie. The last time we talked to you was in early March, which was right about the time that the World Health Organization officially declared a coronavirus pandemic, but just before many states had issued some stay-at-home guidance. Have the last three months played out pretty much as you were expecting in terms of the spread of the disease and numbers of cases, or has there been anything that surprised you in particular? I'm chuckling, Gary, because with COVID, every day seems to be a surprise of one sort or another. (laughs) Um, I've been gratified that I think we've been able to, uh, as they say, flatten the curve. Um, I think that's been more successful than I anticipated across the country. And now, of course, that we're opening up again across the country, opening up society, we're seeing blips of infection that are occurring, which is actually what we anticipated. And so I think we will be learning to live with COVID going forward in this new normal. And there will be lots of individual variation according to different geographic areas as problems do or do not come up. I'm glad to hear that you say that we've success or relatively successfully flattened the curve. Sometimes it's hard to tell one way or another based on, you know, if you just go by headlines from day to day. Oh, I think we've clearly done that. Uh, The compliance with stay-at-home orders was, for example, in my own community of Nashville, just literally universal, I think. And people really did take that very, very seriously. There was a very small number of people who seemed to be rascals and not get with the program. And now that we've opened up, it's clear that we're opening up cautiously. Uh, Things haven't burst forth. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. We all saw the TV images of Memorial Day where there were uh, revelers Uh, out in the sunshine around pools and in theme parks uh, and the like. Uh, That still is a minority. It may be a noteworthy minority, of course, and we'll see whether the compliance with social distancing, that is the wonderful six-foot rule, wearing masks wherever we go, and those sorts of things really sustain themselves over time. My anticipation is we're going to be living with them for quite a while. Now, how quickly the economy can recover will be 
will people be going out to restaurants? I haven't had my first haircut yet outside the home. Uh, those sorts of things. We'll see how quickly that all picks up. I think it personally will be a slow recovery. Time will tell. I'm sure we all have, we'll be waiting anxiously to see how that plays out. Um, one thing that certainly has changed since we spoke last is research into treatments for COVID-19. Can you help us understand the different types of treatments that researchers are exploring right now? A lot of people have heard about remdesivir, which is an antiviral medicine, but are there other types that we should be aware of right now? Well, there's been a fair amount of turbulence about that. Uh, let's start with hydroxychloroquine. Yes, the other one that people are very aware of right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that there was an, initially a lot of enthusiasm because hydroxychloroquine was both an antiviral in the laboratory as well as an immune modulator that had been used for years in people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So it was thought to be perhaps a double-barreled kind of treatment, uh, one that we were generally, as a drug, very familiar with. Uh, it, and, and it turns out, as the data have accumulated, although they're still not ideal and prospective trials still are underway, but I think that early promise has diminished very, very substantially with an emphasis also on potential adverse reactions, particularly lengthening of the QT interval and uh, arrhythmias. So I, I see much less of that drug being used at the present time, although as I say, people are still trying to be recruited into prospective controlled trials. And then along came remdesivir, which uh, clearly offered a glimmer of hope because in an initial study, it was shown to reduce the hospitalization time, and actually there was a trend to improved survival. So this drug is now being, on a moderately limited way, available in many hospitals, not all, uh, around the country under an emergency use authorization by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, clearly, other trials with that drug combinations of drugs, and yet newer drugs are still underway, not only in this country, but around the world. And I would anticipate that within the next couple of months, we will be getting at least early views of some of those results. I mean, if I crossed my fingers and had a hope, my hope would be that we would get one or more drugs that would provide some sort of definitive treatment. If that happened, I think the, figuratively speaking, the temperature around COVID would drop. If we could really um, prevent the development of severe disease and in severe disease, improve outcomes, reducing hospitalizations, definitively improving survival, then I think the entire medical treatment community, as well as the public health community, as well as the public in general, I think, would think, okay, we can cope with COVID. Right. There's, if you do happen to get very sick, there is something to be done. It's, it would be, a, like, as you say, take the temperature down a little bit. Yeah. In some ways, 
almost more important than a vaccine because first of all, it's more immediate. And second, if we can manage the treatment, I think a lot of the anxiety around a deadly COVID virus uh, would diminish. Okay, the docs can cope with this. We can start getting out and about and going about our business. It's more like flu, isn't it? And you would begin to hear that. What about uh, antibody treatments? I've been hearing about that increasingly. Um, and is that related to, is that similar to remdesivir? Can you help us understand the distinction between those two? Well, remdesivir obviously is an external drug. It, it, is, to, uh, it is to COVID as Tamiflu, if you will, is to, uh, is to flu. It is a treatment that we think reduces the duration of the illness and we hope improves survival. As I said, we don't have definitive data on that yet. Uh, plasma treatment, convalescent plasma treatment, uh, is, although not a drug, is a way, an immunological way to treat patients. You can't do it in a large volume, but certainly in certain selected medical centers, it's being used. It has a long history, goes back actually to 1918. People were using some form of plasma treatment. Interesting. The, yeah, the concept is that if you recover and make antibodies, uh, those antibodies should be able to literally neutralize the virus. Uh, prevent its actual attachment to cells, for example. And if you could do that, you could interrupt the progression of the disease. So you harvest the plasma from people who've recovered and then treat people at a relatively early stage of the infection or even later stages. So that's being done now in clinical trials and just clinically uh, around the country in many medical centers. Of course, the people who are doing it are optimistic. They're smiling. Oh, yes, we think it works. Well, as we say, uh, in God we trust, all others must provide data, and we look forward to the results of the trials to help us understand, A, whether it does work, how well it works, and at which stage of the infection it would work. So that's important. Somewhat behind that, is the concept of creating in the laboratory antibodies, developing monoclonal antibodies so you wouldn't have to bleed patients in order to get the plasma, do the plasmapheresis. Uh, but you could actually um, create those antibodies in the laboratory and use those as treatment. Those are still quite investigational, but uh, that's a gleam in the uh, eyes of any number of investigators around the country, including my colleague Jim Crow here at Vanderbilt. Very interesting. We'll have to see, uh, watch out for the news on those developments there. Um, you mentioned vaccines a moment ago, and we've been hearing some estimates that we could have a vaccine by the end of this year, which is faster than the 12 to 18 month timeline that experts were talking about a few months ago, which is already faster than it usually takes to develop a vaccine. Is that really possible, you think, that we could have a candidate or two ready to go by December or January? Harry, did you hear me sigh? <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> I'm concerned about this. 
you know, uh, to reflect back in 2009, when we had pandemic H1N1 influenza, we created a pandemic flu vaccine. It took longer to develop than was anticipated. And when the vaccine finally was available, actually it was available as the outbreak was already receding, all the news was, it came late. What the heck happened? So it destroyed the whole public health concept of that. And what we should have learned is don't overpromise and underdeliver. The reverse is better. Underpromise and then overdeliver. So I wish a lot of people were not out there touting their vaccine and its uh, best case timeline. Uh, because if it doesn't work out, uh, everybody will be grumpy. Uh, it is possible, I suppose, if I take my British colleagues' words at their word, that we could have sometime this fall, perhaps late this fall, uh, the, the Oxford group could have a vaccine approved. They are already so convinced that they're starting to vac uh, manufacture the vaccine before the clinical trials are finished. That way, if the vaccine is indeed found to be effective and safe, and uh, it, it gets licensed, they will already have a warehouse full of vaccine ready to go. In other words, they're making a financial commitment in advance. They're betting on a horse that's going to come in. That would be wonderful, of course. But the more realistic timelines for other vaccines in the horizon is still a year or more away. If they come in earlier, wonderful. We'll all celebrate. Now let's pause for the moment and think about vaccines. We've been thinking about them as almost the savior. We'll open up the door to this locked room we're in, this COVID room we're in. Well. It, they may not be that effective, right? All vaccines are not, not as good as the measles vaccine. Look at our flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know how effective the vaccine will be. It may be a two-dose vaccine. Oh boy, then we'd have to get an even more elaborate tracking system and we'd have to manufacture twice as much vaccine in order to initiate protection. And then the last thing is there have been a couple of surveys done just very recently asking the general public, so if we get a vaccine, would you take it? You know, half the public said, mm, yeah, probably. Mm. And the other half were very wary. And you know why? They said side effects. Mm. When they hear all this publicity about we're doing this as fast as we can, what they hear is, huh, they must be cutting corners. I wonder uh -huh. if I can trust them. So all of this enthusiasm that we've been hearing about vaccines, I think can have a cautionary effect on the general public. So when the vaccine becomes available, not everybody will start rolling up their sleeves. I was going to ask you about that because obviously if these trials are happening much faster than they typically do, and you, you alluded to this a minute ago, what does that mean for our ability to know exactly how effective, you know, once you give someone a vaccine, you won't necessarily be totally sure of 
you know, if they can go back to regular activities, which is why I think what people would expect if they get a vaccine. Ah, well, that's why the phase three, that's what it's called, clinical efficacy trials are so important. That's when a very large number of volunteers, fully informed, uh, agree to get either the vaccine or a placebo. Nobody knows who gets what. It's the classical double-blind trial. The investigators, it's all coded. And then you follow those individuals for a specified period of time, and you see how much disease occurs in the placebo group, the people who normally would have been exposed and gotten sick, and how much uh, disease occurred in the people who got the vaccine. And you can then calculate, quite simply, what the effectiveness of the vaccine is. And you also get a good assessment of its safety. How many people got sore arms, redness, fever, got a headache, felt crummy after the vaccine. So you can inform uh, people, once the vaccine is licensed and ready for use, what to expect. This is how effective it is. And here are the issues when you get your vaccine such as when I get my flu shot, I always get a sore arm that lasts about three hours. Some people, the soreness lasts longer, but we can at least be clear about what the expectations are. Uh, those phase three clinical trials are not being shortcutted, and if that's a word, uh, and they, uh, those results will be absolutely critical. I see. So we'll be a little more certain uh, once we start to roll these out. Um, so say a vaccine does get developed, whether it's the end of this year or next year, it's not as if everyone will be able to show up at their doctor's door the next day and get a shot, right? Um, can you give us an idea of how something like this gets deployed for the general population? Yeah, the short answer is with some difficulty. That's another challenge. Once we have the vaccine in hand and licensed, how do we get it into arms? The first thing is that we as a people have a financial interest in these vaccines because our taxpayer money has gone into their development and our government, I think, will purchase the vaccine and so it will be free, whoever gives it. Uh, as with the uh, as with the 2009 pandemic flu vaccine, I think the distribution will go through state health departments and each state will do it a little bit differently. But basically, you will have public clinics and vaccine will also be given to private practitioners who raise their hand and say, I'd like to give some of that vaccine to my patients. They'll have to account for who to whom they gave it and, and report back to the state health department. But it will be a public-private distribution mechanism. And then, as you say, at the very beginning, as vaccine starts to roll off the manufacturing uh, lots, uh, there will be prioritization. I would anticipate that healthcare providers who are giving first-line care and, and first responders will be at the front of the line. We will want to vaccinate them and then there will be a staged priority for giving the vaccine, which hasn't been determined yet, but the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will establish that. My personal feeling is that that kind of prioritization after the healthcare workers works, kind of. 
it, mm. it, it doesn't work as nicely as the plan is printed on paper, what plan does. Uh, and we will have to go out and actually promote the vaccine to persuade people who should receive it that they actually come in and roll up their sleeves. And then after the high risk folks, which I think as a group will come next, then it will be open to the general population. Uh, perhaps not children, because children and perhaps young adults really don't get the uh, same impact of COVID as do middle-aged and older people. We'll have to see how that prioritization goes. So while we're waiting for the vaccine to get to everyone, you know, first responders, healthcare providers, all the way down through those tiers of vaccination, I wonder if you can give us your thoughts on what life will look like during that time, you know, the next months and years, how the pandemic will shift and change. We hear a lot of talk about, you know, surges in case numbers that could come, especially as more people go back to work and maybe people start relaxing their social distancing a little bit. Do you think that those things are, are, are likely? Is it likely we'd have to go back into a lockdown, you think? Well, first of all, I think we're going to have to learn to live with COVID in certainly the near time, near term future. And by that, I think a couple of years anyway. Um, I, I believe there will be hot spots that spurt up during the course of the summer as we generally open up and we may have nursing home outbreaks or outbreaks in a summer camp maybe or this or that we can't exactly tell so this virus won't go away it won't take a summer vacation it will keep smoldering along even if it does have something of a seasonal abatement the way influenza does although not as profoundly as influenza and then I think to a person, everyone in public health and infectious diseases anticipates that come the late fall and early winter, right along with influenza, COVID will pick up again and start to be transmitted. So we're likely to deal with a double barrel season. And, and what that means, apropos of your question, is that social distancing certainly will continue. Uh, I won't recognize you, uh, uh, Carrie, because you'll be wearing a mask, and I'll be wearing a mask, and wearing masks will become actually kind of the social norm for a long time, and people will be trying to keep six feet away from each other as much as possible. People will be going to businesses, and certainly to my medical center, and having their temperature taken before they can be admitted to the building. We'll be emphasizing hand hygiene, and we'll be making lots of accommodations, many of them imperfect, to opening schools, colleges, universities, barber shops, restaurants, everything that you can imagine will be altered in some way. There will be some people who will be grumpy about that and want to go back to the old normal but the recommendations will be that we'll have to live with the new normal. Now, you asked me a very direct question. Do I think we'll go down to a lockup? And speaking very personally now, this is kind of not a medical concept. Mm -hmm. It's more a political, social, cultural thought. My answer is no way. 
We're mm. not going. We'll emphasize all the social distancing. But the lockdown has had such a profound financial, cultural, and social effects that I, I cannot imagine any government leader or even most of us in medicine and public health recommending that kind of a hard lockdown again. So in effect, we in medicine and we in public health have been handed the baton. We have to cope with this. We are going to have to deal with it going forward. As you can see now, how eager I am anticipating what I hope will be some valid treatments, some effective treatments, because if we had those, we could manage much better. Certainly, and avoid all of the economic and social pain that we've been through in the past three months. Yeah. Certainly. I wonder if you could give us a quick update on testing. Right now we have the viral test to see if you have an active infection and the mm -hmm. antibody test to check for signs that you've been infected before and recovered. Will there be any significant developments in this area? Could you see a day where you could drop into a, you know, urgent care facility and get tested for COVID-19 like you can for the flu? Uh, actually, we're moving in that direction regarding the viral test. And increasingly, laboratories, large commercial laboratories, are able to manage many, many tests with rapid turnaround time. And we're starting to use different specimens, such as sputum, for example, rather than the very intrusive uh, nasopharyngeal swab or just a little swab in the front of the nares, just right in the front of the nose. And uh, people are evaluating those at the present time. Obviously, the easier it is and the quicker it is and the more widely available, the more it will be used. Uh, that's important both for clinical purposes and public health purposes. The antibody tests are also in evolution, of course. Uh, early on, the first released tests didn't have to be validated by the Food and Drug Administration, and they were not as accurate as they should have been. Uh, that's being rectified also, and I would anticipate in the next several months, there will be more antibody tests available. I don't think they're going to be quite as useful as was first anticipated because the early studies and some population-based studies are starting to come out now indicate that only a relatively small proportion of the population so far has been infected. Uh, there was a small study out of California near Santa Clara uh, that showed only about 5% of the population had been infected. Hmm. Everybody expected much more. Uh, there's an early study from near New York City, obviously a really hot spot, and people were surprised. Well, it looked as though only about 20% of the population had been infected. Well, that leaves 80% susceptible, which means the COVID virus has got plenty of places to go, and doing extensive antibody testing won't really help you decide who can come back to work and what jobs they can do because it's only a small minority of the population. Right. So it won't be as useful to allocate individuals to certain activities. Uh, it'll be helpful to public health. We would like to know how penetrant 
this virus has been in different populations, rural areas, urban areas, different states, etc. But I don't think those antibody tests are going to be as helpful operationally uh, as we as was once hoped for. There's been so many people who've been anxious to get an antibody test, but maybe who knows how helpful that would be in knowing you know, what, what you could do going forward. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, we are assuming antibodies mean protection. Eh, that's likely to be true, but we don't know that yet. And then of course, for how long does the protection last? If you look at the human COVID viruses, uh, excuse me, the human coronaviruses, those that usually cause colds, uh, they give you pretty solid protection for about a year, and then they, their protection begins to wane. And over the next several years, the population becomes progressively more susceptible again. Well, that's, that's interesting information, important information, and might suggest, for example, that when it comes to vaccines, it, it may not be a one and done. We'll have to get repeat vaccinations over time at some interval. That's not a shock. Uh, we do that with other vaccines also. Right. That makes sense. Well, there's been a lot that's been going on, and we appreciate your perspective on all of the developments. Dr. William Schaffner, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Always good to be with you, Carrie. And finally, our tweak of the week. Update your medical and dental appointments. Did you have to cancel a routine checkup or a special screening like a pap smear, diabetes test, mammogram, or colonoscopy because of coronavirus? Call your doctor's office about rebooking them. Ask how soon you need to get them done and whether your doctor is handling those appointments differently now. Even if you choose to schedule them further out than normal, it will help get your personal health back on track. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time.